Good morning, Calvary family. I want to invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 46. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 46 through 48 this morning. And you don't think I can do three chapters in one message, but I did it for service, so we're going for it. We're going to be in Isaiah chapters 46 through 48. And these are the final three chapters in a distinct section in the book of Isaiah. So when we get to the end of chapter 48, we'll be kind of transitioning from one section to the next. And because we're kind of at that transition point, and since it's been a while since we've looked at the overall structure of the book, I want to just spend just a few moments just kind of reminding ourselves where we're at in our study of the book so that we can see where our, this passage fits into the greater context. If you remember, the book of Isaiah has two narrative sections, one in chapter 7 one that would begins in chapter 36, and those two narrative sections, or historical excursi, divide the book into three major parts. If you remember, the first part in chapters 1 through 6 describes the divine courtroom, and then in chapters 7 through 35, the theme is God's judgment against sin, and then chapters 36 through 66 the theme is salvation by grace. And so we are currently in that third major part of the book, chapters 36 through 66, and the theme of this part of the book is salvation by grace. So now when we look at that third part, we can kind of divide it into four different sections. If you remember in chapters 36 through 39, there is the historical excursus, which tells the story of Hezekiah, how he was fearful, how he was flawed, but how he was faithful. And then in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, there are three commands given and three themes given that the Lord tells Isaiah and the prophets to proclaim. And so those kind of provide the outline for the remaining three sections of the book, which is to share comfort because the Messiah will bring peace in chapters 40 through 48, to say tenderly that the Messiah will make atonement, chapters 49 through 57, and then to cry out that the Messiah will give salvation, chapters 58 through 66. And so those final three teaching sections of the book all focus on salvation by grace, but if you remember from our message on chapter 40, all three of these sections end with a warning to the wicked. There is a key phrase which occurs at chapter 48, verse 22, and then again at chapter 57, verse 21, and that key phrase is, there is no peace for the wicked. And then the last verse of the book in chapter 66, verse 24, is a similar warning to the wicked. And so in the final three sections of the book, the theme is salvation by grace and all three of them end then with a warning to those who would reject the gospel, reject the Savior, reject the Messiah, and that warning is that there is no peace for the wicked. So when we come to the end of chapter 48, we're coming to the end of one of those sections because chapter 48, verse 22, has that key phrase, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. So this morning we've come to the final chapters of that section in chapters 40 through 48, which I've entitled, Share Comfort, the Messiah Will Bring Peace. And these chapters, chapters 40 through 48, are full of hope because they prophesy that the Messiah is going to bring peace, and the way he's going to do that is by defeating all of the powers of evil. 
And that is why it ends with a stern warning, because if you are not on the Messiah's side, then you're on the side that he must defeat in order to bring peace. And so that warning is given. There is simply no peace for the wicked, and that is something that God himself has said. Now, there is a poignant example of that warning and it occurs in chapters 46 and 47, which prophesy the fall of Babylon. I want you to look at chapter 46, verses 1 and 2. It says, Bel has bowed down, Nebo steep stoops over. Now, what is Bel and Nebo? Well, Bel was the kind of chief god that the Babylonians worshipped, and Nebo was supposedly that god's son, and so Bel was viewed as the king of the gods, and then Nebo is kind of the crown prince. So the kind of two most prominent gods in the Babylonian pantheon is said in chapter 46, verse 1, to bow down and stoop over. It says their images are consigned to the beast and the cattle, the things that carry you are burdensome a load for the weary beast they stooped over they have bowed down together they could not rescue the burden but have themselves gone into captivity and then look at chapter 47 verses 1 through 3 it says come down and sit in the dust O virgin daughter of Babylon sit on the ground without a throne O daughter of the Chaldeans for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Those words mean pampered and coddled. Take the millstones and grind meal. This is the work of a servant. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. And then in verse 11, it says, evil will come on you which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. And if you remember, Babylon falls in a single night as uh, the, Cyrus's engineers divert the Euphrates River and march under the walls of the city in a surprise attack, which causes this mighty city to just fall unexpectedly. So the fall of Babylon is prophesied in these two chapters, and this prophecy of the fall of Babylon is really important to the spiritual health and lives of the people of Israel, and I want to explain why. The people of Israel were about to face an incredible temptation. That temptation was to abandon Yahweh, the true God, in order to worship the false gods of the nation that was going to conquer them. Now, you might think, you know, hey, wait a minute. When a, other, a foreign nation conquers you, why would you worship their gods? Why, why would that be a temptation? Well, I want to explain why that was going to be such a temptation. In the ancient world, throughout the ancient world, there was a common and shared belief that each nation had its own gods and that if your nation's gods were stronger than another nation's gods, you would defeat them in battle and subjugate them and they would serve you because your gods are stronger than their gods. That was the common thinking of the pagan nations all around Israel. So whenever one nation conquered another nation, people in both the conquering country and the conquered country believed that the outcome of the war had proven which God was superior. So when God decided 
to use Assyria as the rod of his punishment, there was a temptation that the people of Israel would say, oh, I guess that means Assyria's gods are stronger than Yahweh and would worship the Assyrian gods. Or when the Babylonians come and take them into 70 years of captivity, there was a temptation that they would think, oh, I guess that means that Bel and Nebo are more powerful than Yahweh, so we better worship them and get on the winning side. God knew that when he used the Assyrians and Babylonians as the rod of his punishment, Satan would tempt the people to switch sides and worship false gods. So, out of compassion for his people to help them to resist temptation, long before the Babylonian exile began, God told the people through the prophet Isaiah that what was going to happen with the Babylonian exile was something that he had ordained and that he had chosen and that he had done. They weren't going to go into exile because the Babylonian gods were superior. They were going into exile because he, the sovereign God, had decided that he needed to punish his people in order to refine them. So he tells them throughout the book of Isaiah that he alone is the true God. The gods of the pagan nations were nothing but wood and stone. Those gods cannot move. They cannot help. They cannot hear. They cannot see. They cannot do anything, and those idols will be toppled. They will bow down, and they will be carried on the backs of animals away to wherever they were being disposed of. Babylon and its false gods and idols will fall. And this again, this prophecy is given before they even go into exile. He declares the end from the beginning, the end of the exile before the exile even begins. Babylon has not even conquered Jerusalem yet, and already their defeat by Cyrus, which whom verse 11 calls a bird of prey from the east who swoops in on Babylon unexpectedly, their defeat has already been revealed. And the Lord was so gracious to reveal that to the people to protect them from the temptation of thinking that their exile is evidence that the gods of Babylon are real and strong. The point here for us is this. God knows the temptations of each age. And he knows what temptations we will face in the future. And he prepares us for them, those temptations now. He uses his word today to equip us to face the temptations of tomorrow. And so the question is, are we listening to what God is telling us today so that we can resist the temptations we will face in the future? Throughout these chapters, you'll see over and over again God saying, listen to me. Listen to me. Take heed to my words. Listen to what I'm revealing you, to you today so that you won't fall for the temptations of tomorrow. You know, as we face the future, we know there will be trials and temptations. But we don't know what those trials and temptations will be. And so I think we all struggle to some degree or another with fear of the future. We know that at some point in regard to trials, at some point in our lives, our grandparents will be taken from us, then our parents, and then perhaps a spouse and other loved ones. We know that our children are going to grow up. They're going to 
fly the nest and we will be left with what we call empty nesters. We know, based on historical precedents, that at some point in the future, the amazing freedom, the peace, and the prosperity which we enjoy in this country could end. And either we or our descendants could face persecution or poverty or other great challenges. We also know that as we age, our bodies are going to deteriorate. Aches and pains will increase Abilities will decrease. And unless the rapture comes in our lifetime, all of us will eventually die. I remember talking to my godly grandfather when he was in his 90s and his health was beginning to decline. And I asked him if he was afraid, and he said, you know, I don't fear death because I know whom I have believed and I know what I've entrusted to him for that day. I know that I have eternal life because of the gospel. I don't fear death. At the moment of death, I'll be in the presence of the Lord. Then he looked at me and he said, but I do fear the process of dying. The process of dying. For many people, it's a very long process. For many, it's a very excruciating process. The process of dying is something we dread we watch the remaining sands in the hourglass of our lives slip away. Every day there's more sand at the bottom of the hourglass than what remains at the top. And we all feel the angst and the dread of the inevitability of the declining health which usually precedes death. The only people who don't get this are children and teens. Right, because they're still on the like increasing abilities, increasing strength, but that increasing ability and increasing strength peaks in the twenties and from there declines. It's a long glide <laughs> to a very ennoble end. It's like a airplane that takes off and shoots off to great heights and then loses its engines. You know it's going down. It's just a matter of how long it can glide. And as we face that slow decline and the uncertainties of the future, we are tempted to fear. Will our faith endure? Will our hope withstand the trials and tribulations of the years to come? Or will our hope wither away along with the strength and vigor of our aging bodies? Will our faith mirror the decline of our bodies? Will our love for Christ remain fervent and hot, or will it grow cold along with our bodies when they reach the point where they can't retain bodily warmth? You know, as I've aged, I've wondered, will my faith, my hope, and my love recede at the same pace my hairline is? Will fear, worry, and dread increase at the same rate my waistline is? Will my faith grow old and fade away as I age, or will my faith remain young and vigorous and strong until the end? Here's the thing. I can't answer those questions because I don't know the future. And the scripture tells me I can't even know my own heart because the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? How will my faith withstand whatever trials and temptations come in the future? I don't know. 
How will my hope withstand the trials and temptations of the future? I don't know. How will my love withstand the trials and temptations of the future? I don't know. That is where the angst comes from, but where the comfort comes from is that I don't know, but God does. He knows the answers to those questions, and he so lovingly has already told me the answer and written it for us in his word. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 46. Will I persevere to the end? Here is God's answer to me and to you. Isaiah 46, 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you. And I will bear you and I will deliver you. That is God's answer to all of my questions. What a glorious promise that is. The same God who gave you life and who saved you will carry you through your old age all the way to the end of your life all the way home. The same God who gave you new birth and has carried you thus far will get you home safely. The New Testament says that you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation which God will reveal in the end times. And the apostle says in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Will your faith fall? Will your hope fade away? Will your love grow cold? Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried by me from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have already done it. I'm going to carry you. I will bear you, and I will deliver you. This is God's promise to us, that that long glide is a glide home. And the plane will make it to the airport because the pilot and the one who is sovereign over it all has promised. So we can, as my grandfather said, we can stare death itself in the face for, God, for Christ has defeated death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we can face the empty nests, the declining health, the unknowns of the future with confident hope because we know who holds the future and who holds us in the future. You see, the good shepherd holds the future and has promised to hold us through the future. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so it's such a blessing to know the Lord, to know that we serve a mighty God who is able to carry us through whatever we face in the future. Remember what he said earlier in Isaiah, when you pass through the rivers, I'll be with you. When you pass through the fire, you won't be burned. I will get you there. I'll get you through it all. Whatever trials come, I'll get you through them. Whatever temptations you face, I'll get you through them. I will bring you safely home because I am the good shepherd. I love the sheep and I bring them to the Father's house. 
Unbelievers don't have that hope. We see that in this incredible contrast at the beginning of verse 46 between those who worship idols and those who follow the Lord. Notice the stark contrast between the followers of false gods and the followers of the true and living God. In verses one and two, and then again in verses five through seven, Isaiah points out that idols have to be carried by men, but in verses three through four, he says that men are carried by God. Look at, for example, verses five and seven. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down and indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. They take gold, they fashion it into a god, they have to actually carry their god to his place, put him in his place. Once he's on his little pedestal, he doesn't move, he doesn't respond, you can cry, beg, you can be like the prophets of Baal who danced around and cut themselves and all of that, and there is no answer because it is a false god. There's this contrast The true God carries you, you carry false gods. False gods must be carried. The believer is carried through the floods of life on the shoulders of the good shepherd, while the unbeliever struggles under the heavy burden of his own idols. God gives, idols take. As has often been said, the gospel is that God gave his son for you, The false religions require you to give your son for God. God carries you. Idols must be carried by you. You know, unbelievers often refuse to give their lives to Christ because they think they're going to lose their freedom. That somehow if they give their life to Jesus, they're going to lose their freedom. They don't realize they are slaves. They are under this incredible oppressive burden of sin like the character in Pilgrim's Progress who's carrying that heavy burden and and finally he throws down the burden at the foot of the cross and he is free. Lugging around idols is not freedom. It is wearisome slavery. True freedom is only found when you repent of your sin and you cast down the heavy burdens of the objects of your false worship that you've been lugging around your whole life and you are lifted out of the miry clay by the Savior and put on his shoulders as a good shepherd and carried even through your old and graying years home to heaven. Look at verses 8 through 13 the words of the good shepherd and the admonition. He says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east. This is another reference to Cyrus. The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. This is the sovereignty of God. So he says in verse 12, Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. 
and my salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Notice that again he says, listen to me. Listen to me. Remember this. Bring it to mind. Listen to me. I am the true God. There's no one like me, and I am the one who brings salvation. I am the one who brings glory. So we need to listen to the Lord, to listen to him. So in chapter 46, the downfall of Babylon is prophesied, and we are reminded to trust in the Lord because he loves us. Then it brings us to chapter 47, and chapter 47 is a prophetic funeral dirge for Babylon. Dr. Tim Dane writes in his commentary, quote, Babylon is going to die, and every death calls for a funeral. The basic theme of Isaiah 47 is that it is a funeral dirge, a lament for Babylon. And so in chapter 47, it's a song that is sung, a funeral dirge for fallen Babylon. Babylon is going to fall, and when you read chapter 47, it says that all of their sorcery and all of their spells and all of their incantations to all of their false gods cannot save them because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They're going to fall, and nothing will save them. He says in 47 verse 15, at the end of the verse, there is none to save you. None of your false gods will help you then. They're just idols sitting on a pedestal, and when Babylon falls, those idols will be toppled. Someone will pick them up, put them on a beast of burden. The beast of burden will labor under their heavy weight as they're carted away. That's going to be the end. By the way, we don't have time to get into this, but in chapter 47, verses 7 through 12, there are several things which are alluded to in Revelation chapter 18. And in Revelation 18, some of these things from Isaiah 47 are applied to the downfall of what's called Babylon the Great, the kingdom of the Antichrist in the end times. And The fall of Babylon the Great comes right before the second coming of Christ. And so this is another example where you have a near fulfillment which foreshadows a far fulfillment. The fall of ancient Babylon at the hands of Cyrus in the near future foreshadows the fall of Babylon the Great at the hands of Christ in the far future. Just as God foretold the downfall of ancient Babylon in advance... He foretells the fall of Babylon the Great in advance. And in both cases, the Lord reveals those things to his people so that we won't be tempted to think that we're on the losing side. We're on the winning side. We get to, as the old saying goes, read the back of the book and know that we win. No matter how dark things get between now and then, we know how the story ends and who wins in the end. So you want to be on Messiah's side of this great battle. Christ has told us about the downfall of ancient Babylon. He's told us about the downfall of future Babylon the Great. And he wants to make sure we're not tempted to despair 
or to think that we're on the losing side. We win, or better to say, Messiah wins. So be on his side. Well, that brings us to chapter 48, and uh, we're gonna spend the rest of our time in chapter 48. And I just wanna briefly give you four encouraging truths from chapter 48. Four encouraging truths from chapter 48. Chapter 48 switches from the fall of Babylon now to an exhortation to the people of God, and in this chapter are four really encouraging truths. The first encouraging truth from chapter 48 is that our hypocrisy and our stubbornness does not change God's sovereignty nor his faithfulness. So no matter how fickle people are, no matter how hypocritical they are, no matter how stubborn they are, that doesn't change God. He's the unchanging one. Look at verses one through eight. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. Right? There's hypocrisy there. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead bronze. Now to put, take that out of ancient language and put it into modern language, he says you are thick-skulled, stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious kids. Verse 5. Therefore, for that reason, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say, my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this. And you, will you not declare it? I proclaim you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And before today, you have not heard them so that you will not say, behold, I I already knew this. Verse 8, you have, you have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been open, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you have been called a rebel from birth. So here they are, they are hypocritical, they are stubborn, they are thick-skulled, they don't listen, they don't obey, but God says that doesn't change me. It doesn't change my purposes. It doesn't change my plan. That doesn't change me or thwart what I have intended to do. And this is an encouraging truth. Our sin, our stubbornness, our hypocrisy doesn't change the Holy One, doesn't change the plan of redemption. There is a rock which is unmovable. It can't even be moved by our fallings and failings. So encouraging, so encouraging. You know, sometimes people who are drowning, you know, they'll grab onto someone nearby. And for a moment, they think they're saved because they can grab onto that person and push themselves up out of the water. But as often tragically happens, the person who is grabbed onto sinks, and then the one who held onto them sinks with them that is what happens to many people's faith they never place their faith in Christ 
they place their faith in someone, family, a famous preacher, this or that or the other thing, but it's all human. They never place their faith on the rock, which never moves and cannot sink. Your faith needs to be in Christ, not in anyone or anything else. All else will falter and fail. He alone remains. Put your faith and trust in Christ our rock. And remember that human hypocrisy, human sin, human stubbornness, human scandals do not change either God's sovereignty nor his faithfulness. That is such an encouraging truth. Before we move on to the second one, I just want to point out briefly to you that in chapter 48, verse 6, it says, I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. This is a signal in the book of Isaiah that the focus of the prophecies are going to switch from the near-term to the more distant future, from near-term fulfillments to far-term fulfillments. In other words, the focus is going to shift now on the messianic prophecies about the first and second coming of Christ. There will continue to be some near-term prophecies in the rest of the book of Isaiah, but from this point on, the focus now begins to look more distant to the sufferings of the Messiah, chapter 53, and then to his second coming, as is revealed in the following chapters. But let's move on now to the second encouraging truth, which is in verses 9 through 11, and that is this. God's Grace is based on his own glory, not our goodness. And this is an incredibly encouraging truth. Look at verses 9 through 11. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. So again, in verses 1 through 8, he's described them as thick skulled, stubborn, hypocritical. And he says now in verse 9, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. All right, he's telling them what the exile is supposed to do for them. It's supposed to refine them in the furnace of affliction. And he says in verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God's grace is based on his own glory, not our goodness. He says, for my own name, for my own praise, for my own glory, I delay my wrath, I refine you, and I deliver you. Beloved, if God treated us as our sins deserve his wrath would have already fallen on us there would be no salvation no refining and definitely no glorification in heaven we should rejoice at the declaration which is found in these verses that the reason that God restrains his wrath is for his name his praise and his glory because those things are rocks which don't move and don't change our obedience ebbs and flows. Our fervor for the Lord ebbs and flows. We're fickle. We're here today, not there tomorrow. We're up and down. We're all over the place. We're like a leaf blown and tossed in the wind. And that is not a foundation upon which anything can rest. What can rest and can, and can uphold the edifice of our salvation is God's glory, his name, his praise. 
Those are the things which never falter, never fade, and never fail, and that is the foundation upon which our salvation rests. Grace, which is rooted in human goodness, is fickle and will fall. But grace, which is rooted in God's glory, is unconditional, imperishable, and eternal. I am so glad that our salvation rests on God's glory, his praise, and his name, and not on me. Stand on the rock. It's the only thing which will remain. Third encouraging truth is in verses 12 through 16, which is the encouraging reality that the Father sent the Son and the Spirit to accomplish the plan of redemption. Now, when I say that, you're like, wait, wait a minute. I thought we were in the Old Testament. And we are in the Old Testament. But here is revealed that the Father sent the Son and the Spirit to accomplish the plan of redemption. Look at verses 12 through 16. Again, verse 6 has already indicated us that, that the topic is going to switch now to the far future, to the coming of Messiah. Look at verse 12. It says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him, and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. I want you to notice that all three persons of the Trinity are described in verse 16, which is why the Hebrew scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum points out that, quote, this chapter contains the clearest presentation of the Trinity in the Godhead in all of the Hebrew scriptures. You have the son saying that I was there eternally when all of this was decided. And he says in verse 16, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The father sent the son and the spirit to accomplish and seal our salvation. The New Testament gives us more information that the primary mission of the Son was to save, the primary mission of the Spirit is to sanctify, and so it's encouraging to see here in the Old Testament an affirmation that our salvation is the work of all three persons of the Holy Trinity. Some people have this kind of false con you know, conception that you know, the Son is really eager to save and the Father is kind of reluctant to, you know, to accept us and he's kind of stern and unloving. No, 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 no. It is the Father who sends the Son and the Spirit to save us. All three persons of the Trinity in our salvation. This is important. Paul builds upon this in Romans 8 to say if the Father sent the Son the most precious one, won't he give us along with the Son everything else we need? And then he says, if the Spirit is the one who intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express, won't we be able to persevere? And if the Son of God gave his life for us, is there anything that can separate us from his love? No, there's nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
So it's encouraging to know that our salvation was provided by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. There is nothing that's a stronger rock than that. A salvation provided by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and sealed for all eternity by God the Spirit. That's encouraging. Fourth and final encouraging truth from this chapter is that what God commands is always in our best interest. It's always for our good and for our joy. Look at verses 17 through 22. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to your prophet, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. You see, what God commands is always in our best interest. It's for our good and for our joy. At the beginning of verse 17, it says that what God teaches us is for our profit. It's for our benefit. And then verse 17 says that he leads us in the way that we should go, the right way. Verse 18 connects listening to God to a well-being which flows like a river. At the end of verse 18, it says that families flourish when God's word is followed by the parents. And in verses 20 through 21, we're told to be filled with joy and to rejoice at the provision and protection of the Lord, remembering what he did during the exodus and applying it to what he will do for us. What God commands is always in our best interest. It's always for our good and it is always for our joy. So listen and obey. Listen and obey. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. So don't go that way. Follow Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Take, upon, take my burden upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Well, that brings us to verse 22, which ends this section with a warning. You see, from chapters 40 through 48, comfort has been extended because the Messiah is going to bring peace. But that only applies to those who are followers of Jesus the Messiah. For those who are not, verse 22 is the verse which applies, and it simply says, there is no peace for the wicked. Friend, have you made peace with God? There's only two statuses of the soul, enmity with God or reconciled to God. No peace for the wicked, or God's peace forever? Have you made peace with God by repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, who was buried and who rose again on the third day to save you? If you haven't made peace with God, make today the day of reconciliation. Give your life to Christ.
Throw down the heavy burdens of your false idols and embrace the only one who saves. I want to invite the men to come as we celebrate the Lord's table together. And as they come, I want you to reflect on the comfort which comes from the gospel. If you don't know the Lord, I want to ask you not to partake of the elements. We're so honored that you're here, that you're our guest today, but I'd like to ask you to let the elements pass by. You don't want to partake of a symbol of faith if you don't have faith, but instead use the time to reflect on your life. And my prayer is that you would give your life to Christ as we reflect on his death, burial, and resurrection. For those who are believers, use this time as the men serve us to examine yourself and your fellowship with God and others. Let's go to our time of examination.